Welcome, everybody. Welcome to today's live stream. Uh, I'm your host, Zach Scriven. We go live every week here uh, Tuesday at noon central. So uh, make sure to smash the like button, uh, hit the subscribe button, and turn on bell notifications so you guys get notified every time we go live. Uh, we've got a great, uh, interesting show planned for you today. Uh, let me know where you guys are joining from in the comments. And uh, we'll let everyone kind of get into the stream today and then before we get started. So we're going to be talking about, uh, we're actually going to be talking about Tesla a little bit today, kind of going into some of their metrics and some of their numbers. Uh, this should appeal to the finance folks, the CEOs, the CFOs that are probably uh, shitting their pants right now because uh, it's not software that's eating the world. It's Tesla that's eating the world, right? Um, we have an industry 4.0 maturity score. Tesla ranks number one, right? This is the fourth industrial revolution happening before our eyes, and now it's finally being visible. Uh, we got a poll in the chat on the YouTube. Hey, David, what's up, 4.0 gang? Um, I'm here in, in uh, Salt Lake City, so uh, it's kind of like raining outside. I don't know if you can really see that, but uh, it's kind of nice, actually. It's not too cold. Maybe we'll get some snow here in a couple months. Hey, Mario, welcome from Brazil. Uh, yeah, so enter the chat. Uh, are you guys a Tesla investor? Uh, we've been talking about Tesla for, you know, three plus years on our channel now. Uh, don't make the same make mistake I did where we just talked about it, but didn't actually take action, right? Um, so uh, Walker's not going to be on the stream today. He's actually, he has a message for you guys. I'll, I'll, I'll share what that message is in a second. But um, yeah, we're today we're going to be talking about OEE is lit. It's not shit. OEE is lit. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about some of the um, the problems with OEE, right? Um, you know, OEE is not perfect, right? And it's not the only metric. Um, and then, like I said, we're also going to be talking about Tesla. Hey, Marquez family, thank you for joining from South Carolina, Seneca. Awesome. Manufacturing hub right there. Um, Matthew Kendall, welcome from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Ben Yeming from Pakistan. Kios from Minneapolis. Hey, Alan. All right, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and get started here. Make sure, again, make sure to hit the like button, get subscribed, turn on bell notifications because we do this every every week. So take let everyone take a breath in. Still time, still still early in Tesla's uh, bull run. Still early. It's not too late to get in. Alrighty, let me go ahead and share my screen. Okay. Hey, Johan. Hey, Annabelle. Hey, Devin. It's it's cheap. You're gonna look back and and think that it's cheap. It's a it's a technology growth company. They're growing at fifty plus cumul, uh, CAGR cumul, cumulative annualized growth rate. Uh, Josh, he sat in the car today. Josh, what is your opinion of the Tesla? Right? Uh, I think Walker described it as like a spaceship. Um, so expensive. It is, right? I mean, I think split adjusted, it's at like 6,000 a share now, right? I, I could see it going to split adjusted 100,000 a share. We might even be uh, doing a split next year, right? I thought you were going to talk about those red shoes. Hey, those red shoes do look pretty hot, right? Those those red shoes do look uh, pretty hot in the uh, <laughs> in the screenshot there. <laughs> yeah, 
Thank you. Uh, real quick, thank you, HiveMQ, for sponsoring our channel. HiveMQ is an enterprise class MQTT broker. Funny enough, they actually have um, a huge application. A lot of automotive customers are using MQTT uh, to transmit their data back to their infrastructure. Um, so huge shout out to HiveMQ. Check the link in the description to learn more about HiveMQ and considering use, consider using HiveMQ in your infrastructure. We're going to be doing uh, several videos, whiteboard style videos, kind of like the one we did last week with the uh, UNS and historian architecture. We're going to be doing more architecture videos. You guys really seem to like that one. So we're going to be doing more, um, more vibe board videos. Um, the Puma shoes stepped up their game when it comes to shoes. Um, why? Yeah, Josh said, why, you sit in the car and just ask, why would anyone buy a different car? All right, let's go ahead and uh, blow this up. Okay, let's see if I can adjust this a little bit. If I make it a little bit more narrow, it should. Okay, that should work. Okay. All right, so real quick, uh, this is going to be important for later. A little quick side note, uh, a lesson on what is a straw man? Because uh, there seems to be a lot of this like being proliferated on LinkedIn, people strawmanning OEE. Essentially, what a straw man argument is, is you misrepresent someone's argument to make it easier to attack, right? So we'll get into this later, but just remember this for later in the stream. And uh, let's get into Tesla. All right. So I think it's really important to like look at this chart and understand that, uh, you know, the Model 3 was released in like 2018. So prior to 2018, actually, let me see if I can pull this up here. So prior to 2018, um, it was all Model S, Model X, right? So for those of you guys that don't know, um, Tesla started out like with this triangle approach, right? So low number of vehicles, right? So Tesla's mission is to save and uh, save the planet, save and create uh, renewable energy. And so they're kind of like an energy and transportation company, right? They want to accelerate the world's adoption of electric vehicles. So prior to 2018 and before, this was all uh, Model S, Model S. Model X, and even before that, you had the Roadster. That was actually their first car. Fun fact, uh, I actually, and when I was in high school, I graduated class of 2010, we had like clean e -vehicle, EV vehicle week or whatever. There was literally a Roadster sitting in our uh, campus parking, like a, the center of our campus. We could go check it out. Um, it looked like a model, it looked like a Lotus, right? A Lotus Elise. Uh, it's a good-looking car, but um, one of the problems was their initial design philosophy when when designing the Roadster was, "Hey, let's take a Roadster." Let's see, if we can. Can you guys see that here? Let's see if I can move this to the other side. There we go. So their initial de design philosophy, like let's let's do a very expensive car in low volume, then a you know a less expensive car and uh, you know super super expensive car, the Roadster, and low 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 volumes, right? Then the Model S, still a really expensive car, destroy that category, low volumes, right? So this was all Model S, Model X, but 
the Roadster was actually like in two, even 2010, you know, it does it wouldn't even show up because there was just such low volumes. They're almost making them by hand. But the original design philosophy was like, let's take a Lotus and then we'll just convert it into an EV, right? But the problem was less than 7% of the parts were the same, right? The battery pack made the vehicle much more heavy, so they had to do uh, frame, structural frame improvements. None of the body panels were the same. Um, even like things as simple as like the air conditioner, it was a belt-driven air conditioner. They had to replace it for like an electric motor air conditioner, right? So um, it was a modified and stretched Lotus Elise, right? But less than 7% of it was um, unique, right? So they learned, uh, they made mistakes and they recovered quickly when they, uh, even like the, they outsourced, outsourced, uh, they outsourced motor, right? They had like a supplier like of electric motors and they realized real quickly that wasn't going to work. So what did they do for the Model S? They started building everything themselves. They, they basically went back to the drawing board and built it from scratch. Um, you know, this is what Walker was saying. They, they originally copied uh, how legacy automotive went to market, right, by outsourcing the supply chain and, um, you know, having thousands of parts. And, you know, they're like, hey, that's not, that's not conducive to building electric vehicles at scale. So they, they learned Model S. They basically went back to the drawing board, built it up from scratch, built their own electric drivetrain, et cetera. Um, but it was low volume. Expensive car, low volume, and the Model S was over $100,000, right? I think it's like 110 now. And same thing with like the Model X, I think it's 105K, something like that. So um, in 2018, we had the, uh, the Model 3. So this was the iPhone moment for, well, you could call this also, we've had a lot of iPhone moments in the last couple of years with Tesla, but really, 2021 is kind of a pivoting point, you know, really where everything kind of just goes exponential. Uh, Tesla to Mars, okay? So Model 3 come out here, and then uh, here's when the first Ys started shipping, like in this, this quarter right here, uh, 2020, Model Y. Um, Model Ys already almost surpassed the Model 3 in terms of units produced, and it came out like two years later. So just think about that for a second. Um, by 2023, the Model Y will be the best-selling vehicle of any kind, right? Electric, gas, you name it, um, and possibly by 2022, okay? Uh, there was a really sick chart that I was trying to find before I uh, was making, while well, I was pre preparing this presentation that showed cumulative number of EVs uh, sold since, uh, you know, not since, like, over time, like, by year, but since it was introduced, right? So, like, it was something like this, right, where, you know, Model 3 was kind of like this. All the other electric vehicles are like this, essentially. Like, even the Model S is like that. But then the Y is literally like this. It's already almost, so if this is like 10 months, and 3, you know, it's been out like 30 months. The Model Y is literally almost outsold the Model, at, uh, Model 3 in, like, less than a third of the time. Um, Josh says crossover SUVs are the most popular. So yeah. And you know what, you know, what's different that a Tesla's doing versus other auto manufacturers is that they're literally just creating one category killer per category, right? Look at how many, I mean, how many SUV crossovers does Ford make, you know, 
they're not going to be making any in the future. They're just going to be focusing, niching down on trucks, uh, like with their electric lightning and stuff like that. So this was, I, I tried to find that chart. I couldn't find it. If I do find it, I'll share it in the discord later, but, uh, let's get back to the story of Tesla, the growth story. Um, how are they doing this? Well, fourth industrial revolution. We talk about this all the time, right? What they learned when selling the model S and X, you know, back here, they applied that to the model three. They were able to ramp Model 3. What they learned selling the Model 3 and building out the Model 3 factory, they literally took that and they put it into the Shanghai factory. Um, some Tesla bears will like to say, hey, uh, EV sales are down in China. You know, they'll like try to like cross analyze like one small piece of data and take it out of context. So like, oh, EV shipments are down in China. Well, you don't want to know why? Because uh, the, the Tesla cars, the Tesla vehicles that come out of the Shanghai factory that was built like, you know, in 2020 are much more profitable than the ones that come out of uh, Fremont. And that's why they're retooling Fremont. Um, that's why the Tesla models that come out of uh, the new Gigafactory in Texas and the new Gigafactory in Berlin will be even better, right? But they're literally, they're literally taking inventory from Shanghai and mostly shipping it to Europe. So if uh, the number of units that are actually sold in China are down, that's why, right? Uh, don't listen to the bears. So yeah, I mean, this is just gonna continue. Um, you know, they're at a million, one million per year right now. That's like the, that's like the rate. Uh, this year they'll basically, you know, they'll hit like, you know, eight, 900,000. You know, last quarter was like 240,000 uh, 240, deliveries in one quarter. So, you know, you do the math times four, that's at a million vehicle per year rate. With a 50% cumulative annualized growth rate, you know, they're going to be hitting 2 million, uh, you know, by 2023 for sure. Uh, so uh, let's move on to the next slide here. I think it's also important to uh, take a look at this next slide, which is, yeah, this is sort of this is sort of uh, that same chart that I was talking about, but this is normalized based on year, and you can you can really see, you know, here's where the model, uh, you know, if you if you started them at the same point, right? Here's where the Model Three started selling. Here's where the Model Y. Look at that ramp. Okay, any questions? So. Um, You'll notice Model 3, uh, Model 3 sales started to decline a little bit right here. That's because, you know, obviously Model Y, you know, some people were starting to order the Y instead, but it's still actually going back up because now can't even get, <laughs> can't even get the Model Y, right? You can't even get the Model 3. Uh, Walker had to order the performance in order, the Model 3 performance in order for it to come in a reasonable amount of time. So, um, yeah, so let's move on to the next one. This is why, this is why I'm a Tesla investor. This is why industry 4.0 plays into their manufacturing process because they're using data information to not only make their cars better to, but to make their manufacturing process better, right? Look at this ramp, right? They, they ramped here, but you know, they sort of like plateaued here, right? Then they actually went down, but then they had a ramp, right? This is a much more smoother ramp, right? Think about if they actually released uh, the Model 2 or, you know, it's not actually called the Model 2, but if they released the uh, 25K model, which may not even have a steering wheel, 
you know, it might be like 2023, but it's literally going to, I mean, it's literally going to look like this, you know? So they're not going to even release that car. There's no need for them to release it because they can't, uh, they're, they're scaling their manufacturing oper operations so fast right now that even if they had a new model, it wouldn't increase the number of vehicles that they could sell because they're at capacity, right? Tesla could literally sell every electric vehicle they make for years and years to come because the demand is that high. Someone's like, oh, uh, uh, Gordon, there's like a, a analyst, Gordon, he's a big Tesla bear. He's like, oh, uh, Tesla selling 100,000 vehicles to Hertz is a sign of weakness because typically they're sold at a discount. Well, newsflash, they sold them at retail price. And Elon just tweeted saying, the contract's not even signed yet. So he's basically saying this, this Hertz deal doesn't even matter to us. Now, it's going to be a great because uh, having 100,000, and they might even order 200,000 um, Tesla Model 3s, that's like a new, that's like outsourcing their marketing. In fact, Hertz is running paid ads on Facebook and social channels using like Tom Brady, I think. Tom Brady. So like literally, and, and marketing the Tesla Model 3, that they have the Tesla Model 3. So Tesla's like literally getting all that benefit, and Hertz is paying for it, and they're paying full retail costs for the cars. Let's move on. So um, this is actually, you know, really important. This will make uh, the fundamentalists, you know, sort of happy. Um, so obviously, this was when they were scaling. This is when they were building out the Model Three factory and the Giga factory uh, in um, Nevada. Uh, here's where they were ramping uh, Model Y, Shanghai, or yeah, something like that. So they're building out the factory. Now look at that profit. This is profit. This is uh, net income. So they're basically investing. I think they lost like $3 billion. And here they basically broke even. And now they're like in the green, in the green, like several billion, right? That's almost five, last quarter, almost $500 million, uh, net income. Um, that's not coming from, that's not coming from tax credits, right? That's not coming from Bitcoin sales. I think the Bitcoin sale was, uh, I think that there was like, this might've been Bitcoin sale, right? They made a hundred, they made like a hundred million in Bitcoin sale. And then you've got like 200 million in, uh, tax credits, which by the way, I mean, that's legit. You know, I mean, if other auto manufacturers are buying them, then that's their problem, not Tesla's, you know? So this is all, this is all car profit, right? This is all car profit. So, um, if someone says, Hey, you know, they're only making money because the test, because the, because the, the credits, well, one, that's just fucking not true. And two, so what, <laughs> so what, you know, Tesla's going to start making money from insurance. Uh, they're possibly releasing a phone, Tesla phone that connects to Starlink internet, um, Tesla energy, right. Uh, their solar, um, you know, I don't know if anyone knows, but they actually acquired Solar City um, way back, I think uh, somewhere around here. Um, but Solar City sales went down, right? They lost market share. Solar City was the number one uh, like electric, uh, so, uh, photovoltaic electric manu um, installer in the in the world, like in 2017. 
and they went down. The reason why was because like literally all of the staff from the Solar City team was put all hands on deck for Model 3 ramp. Because basically if Model 3 ramp didn't work, I mean, they would have been in the toilet, right? So it had to work, right? They had no other choice but to make Model 3 work, right? Uh, 2018, thanks, Josh, for checking that. Yeah, so 2018, they acquired them. The sales went down the last two years. It's starting to ramp back up, right? They've they've got Model 3 successfully selling. They've got Model Y ramped up even quicker. Um, now they're opening up new factories, right? You know, Model Y is going to become best-selling vehicle in the, in the world. Um, Model 3 was already the best-selling vehicle in Europe of any kind, ICE included, or, um, yeah, home energy, right? Kyo said, how about the home energy market, right? Some people don't realize this, but they're, uh, like your home creates a lot of excess heat, right? You have your refrigerator that's dumping off heat and you have like your, um, your washer and dryer and all of these other things that create heat. Well, Tesla had like this model three heat pump that takes heat from the, and, uh, from places that are generating them within the, within the car. And then it converts it back into energy for the battery. So the same thing applied to like Tesla HVAC or Tesla home energy. It could use a heat pump and recover some of that uh, energy lost to heat. Um, so not only making renewable energy more abundant, like using more renewable energy, but also decreasing the energy usage of homes, right? Um, I don't know if they're going to enter that market anytime soon, just because they've got their hands full with uh scaling they're you know they're going to be ramping berlin pretty soon i think the first vehicles will actually be coming out of berlin end of this year so you know 2022 they're going to be ramping um berlin and then and uh, later in 2022 they'll be ramping gigafactory austin so economies of scale oh you know one thing i wanted to talk about was like uh the rocket equation for manufacturing you know we they're we're going to get into OE in a second, and obviously OE is not the only metric that matters. But when you look at manufacturing from a first principles approach, like Elon does, right? He removes processes, right, and he removes procedures. He makes it. He he deletes parts from the car, right? The the Model Three um, rear chassis used to be like seventy parts that were like welded together with like uh, a line of like three hundred robots. They do one giga casting and they've deleted 300 robots, and now it's one, or I think it's like three parts. They might go to single piece rear casting, but uh, I think right now it's three pieces of rear casting that they put together. So instead of 70 parts, they have three, right? Um, their goal is to essentially get the car down to like 100 parts. Um, so they're, and each time they do a new factory, it's a new iteration. Uh, I think they're gonna uh, take Fremont and upgrade that like right now Fremont's doing like half a million vehicles a year and it's basically packed now um, they're going to try to squeeze a million vehicles per year out of Fremont um, and Berlin's gonna be, uh, Berlin and Austin are going to be like 1 million to 2 million plus vehicles per year Cheryl said Tesla wall units are bundled with solar roof right so they used to sell the Tesla power wall you know this little battery pack So the power wall would essentially, um, uh, you know, allow you to store energy, and then you could you could use that to like, uh, if you're if uh, to stabilize the grid, right? You could store solar energy in, in, in the day and then use it at night. So 
uh, you can almost become um, grid independent. But what's even better is that you're actually going to do um, VPP, which is a virtual power plant. So imagine if everyone in the neighborhood had uh, Tesla power walls. Collectively, that's like a distributed. Um, it's like a distributed power plant, right? Each one is like 7.4 kilowatts. You know, you multiply that by like a subdivision of 100, or you've got like almost, you know, 700, uh, you know, 700 kilowatts, almost a megawatt, <laughs> almost a megawatt power plant. You know, um, and then they have grid grid level storage with the power packs or the uh, yeah power packs like they're like big big grid level storage. So, but basically, they're not selling power walls uh, individually anymore. You have to get a solar system because there's just so much demand. They, they, uh, they're scaling out their new 4680 batteries, right? Um, and even you know, it's crazy. Like they're building their own plant to to build these, and and they're like, we can't we can't purchase them fast enough. Like Panasonic, if you build out a 4680 plant, which they're doing, he said, we'll buy all the batteries you can, right? They're literally supply constraint right now. Um, let's move on. All right. OEE. So this, this is going to wrap up the Tesla portion of our uh, discussion. It's a little warm up. Let's get into OEE. I don't know if you can kind of see this here, but I'll, I'll zoom in on this one. Honestly, I don't even really want to read this because it's kind of it's bullshit. But this guy, Tony, Dr. Tony Burns, uh, posted uh, saying, today I asked if Dr. Wheeler says OEE is nonsense, what should I use? And then kind of goes into this long spiel. Basically, it co come to find out, uh, these guys are actually trolls, right? They don't actually want to engage in a discussion. Um, you know, they just, they just will blast out like, oh, OEE is like high times weight to measure your, um, to measure your health or something like that. It's, it's fucking horseshit. <laughs> Obviously the, the taller you are, the more you're going to weigh. So there's like an inverse correlation. I mean, it's not, it's just a horrible example and they're not really open for discussion. Uh, I invited them to come on the podcast. I, I reached out, sent them a connection request, both Dr. Tony Burns um, and Dr. Wheeler and uh, Ross James, who we'll get here, we'll get we'll get to what Walker's comment was, we'll Ross James in a second. But um, we'll, we're going to explain um, why we like OE, and we're going to also identify its problems. But uh, essentially, here's what Walker said. Um, Walker essentially smacked this guy in the face with a two by four. So Walker said, "Ross James, I am not a uni dropout." So he sort of like looked at my profile and and. Um, took a stab at my education, but he said, I am a multi-degreed solutions architect with 21 years building solutions that have transformed, saved, and built organizations. That's part of our mission, save and create middle-class jobs by leveraging technology like Tesla uses to help make manufacturers more efficient, to innovate, right? To do more with less. Dr. Wheeler makes some valid points, which I even said, right? One of their biggest points was uh, quality is not binary. We agree, right? There's more granular ways to measure quality, right? This kind of gets into the straw man argument, which I'll get to a second, but as does Burns. But they apply to very uh, narrow vectors. On a macro level, they are flat out wrong. That's 
what I said in the Discord that seemed to really ruffle some people's feathers. I said, you know, what they're saying is true, but they're strawmanning OE. They're doing a straw man argument of OEE. No one ever said operate your business only with OEE, right? That's a straw man, right? Um, obviously, there's better ways to measure quality than just good part versus bad part. Their statements and yours are flat out wrong. They miss some very key and simple elements of operational analysis and, uh, analysis and continuous improvement. And they miss all the value differentiators of OEE and data science. And they misinform the already misinformed community. And here's the part where we're dedicating today's live stream to discuss it in detail. If you don't want me to reference your public posts, please delete them. Well, he didn't delete them, so we'll go ahead and reference them. And then he, <laughs> this part, uh, I was like, fuck yeah, Walker's got my back. Uh, taking a pot shot at Zach's education is per ad hominem. You know nothing of his professional compliments. VPs of basket weaving don't have an excuse for taking intellectual shortcuts like that, and neither do you. All right, let's move on here. Yeah, Walker, I, I was telling... Uh, I was telling my girlfriend about this uh, engagement. I'm like, yeah, Walker just took it, like literally just took a two by four and smacked him across the face with it. And she was like, oh my God. I'm like, no, like figuratively, figuratively, he smacked him in the face with a two by four. Smells like doctors falling into another logical fallacy, appeal to authority. Yeah, that's one of the things that people say about our content all the time is like, oh, we appeal to the engineer or, you know, we, we ruffle the feathers of executives. That's why we don't do PowerPoints is because PowerPoint tells you nothing other than that you know how to make good PowerPoints, you know, smoke and mirrors, right? There's someone that comes to mind. He uses Prezi, you know, Prezi, like where like zooms around. I mean, it's, it's looks cool, but um, it would lead you to believe that that person knows something about MES or SCADA or, um, but they really don't. I am a doctor. Therefore, my gospel is absolute. You know, I, I'd rather have a manufacturing company led by a technology uh, engineer than than a than a than an MBA. Ten times out of ten, I would take the, um, you know, look at Elon Musk, right? You know, uh, there's actually a video that Walker did, how industry is changing, part one. There's also a masterclass that goes further into detail on that, the IIoT free masterclass, and he literally says, industry 3.0 was all about manufacturers being run by accountants and HR. Industry 4.0 is all about account, uh, technology companies, right? There's a, there's a uh, you know, Tesla's over a trillion dollar valuation that literally puts Tesla right alongside Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, right? Tesla's gonna become the most valuable company in the world within the next couple of years here. Right. They only have to hit twenty five hundred dollars per share to make them, you know, the most valuable company in the world. And they're already at twelve hundred dollars a share. Right. So they're halfway there. So this is uh, availability, quality, performance. Let's uh, let's break down what OEE is. Uh, we'll break down why we like it. Um, we'll, we'll break down why you multiply them together, um, what to do with those numbers. And then we'll last but not least. We'll address some issues, some potential issues with OEE, some examples of edge cases where OEE might lead you in the wrong direction, what to do in those scenarios, and then we'll open up for questions. Devin said, there's always going to be some confirmation bias. Existing investors want Tesla to grow, so they benefit 
and those who haven't want to find a reason not at this stage when it's grown considerably. I did a poll. <laughs> I did a poll that, um, yeah, it's like 70% of people either said hold, sell, or it's overpriced sell, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, I don't, knowing what we know, right? Knowing what this community knows, showing you those numbers that I showed you, right? I mean, all they have to do is drop the $25,000, uh, you know, we'll call it the Corolla killer, right? A Model 3 is already less expensive to, to maintain than a Toyota Corolla, right? That's why Hertz wants to buy 100,000 of them, right? The OPEX is going to go down, right? Um, just pure insanity out there. Okay, so let's, uh, let's do this. All right, so we'll do availability. All right, availability takes into account un, uh, unplanned and planned stops. Um, and availability score of 100% means the process is always running during the planned production time. Um, let's talk about what some things are for planned production time. Our, our uh, safety meetings, are those downtime or is that is that unplanned downtime or is that planned downtime? Someone let me know in the comments. Safety meetings or lunch breaks, are those are those considered planned downtime or unplanned downtime? I'll, I'll let you know what it is, but I just want to see um, what the community has to say. Also, like shifts. Obviously, if you have uh, three shifts, here's shift one, here's shift two, and then, you know, let's say shift three, you're not operating shift three. So each one of these is eight hours, right? So here, you know, your planned, your planned runtime would be, you know, uh, 16, 16 hours, right? So eight hours, eight hours, right? Typically, you want to calculate OE down to the second. But uh, for the purposes here, let's just talk about this. Uh, but then what you'll do is you'll, you'll subtract out, um, you'll subtract out your shift. Oh. Yeah, so it, to answer the question, lunches would be subtracted out, right? So this would be planned downtime. This would be planned downtime. Right, so if you take out your breaks, planned downtime. Also, changeover, planned downtime. Yep, planned. You guys are right. All right, good. I, I hope you guys, I hope you guys are... Uh, you know, if you've never built an OEE system from scratch, I highly recommend it. You'll learn more about OEE and the potential uh, roadblocks in, in, in calculating it um, than you, than, you know, just by doing that than you would ever by watching any videos. But um, so OEE, the problem, Walker said there's two problems with OEE, right? Number one, um, machine builders haven't standardized how events are processed, right? The way we process events is we take all events that happen on the edge and we publish them into a unified namespace, right? Report by exception, edge-driven, lightweight. Uh, the second problem is status registers. So we got one, events, two, status. A lot of times mach machines aren't even coming with a status register. This is like a, this is an integer like zero, one, two, three, et cetera. So like zero would be off, one would be 
ready to run, two would be running, three would be alarm, four would be a different type of alarm, right? Um, if, if we had at least, if we at least had manufacturers that are machine builders putting in uh, status registers into their machines, then we, calculating OE would be a little bit easier, right? And then what you could do is you could take, uh, you could take this change, any type of change in this, you could do a, a tag change script And then you'd publish that as an event, right? You'd, you'd store that as a record in the database uh, to, to calculate OE, right? How do you contextualize events? Um, so what I do is I, I have like, and I didn't really plan on going this detail in it, but you'd essentially have uh, a database and you'd call it like uh, machine state or you know machine status. And then, you know, you'd have uh, one row for every change, right? Um, you'd have, uh, you know, state. The, state. the state that it became, right? You don't really need the previous state because you can do a self-join to get the previous record to know what it was before. So, you know, essentially, if it was like a one at this time, you could add other columns for context if you want. But really, you just need the state, the machine, you should really just put all of your, uh, you should put all of your separate machines that you have defined into a single database and, you know, just manage it. And then you have the time, right? Then it, then it goes to state two, right? Uh, for machine one at time two. Then when you, when you pull these records back, you do a self join, You'd take time two minus time one, and then you know that it was in state one for a thousand seconds, and then it was at state two for, well, if there's no if there's no new record right now, then you basically you take the last record that was returned uh, by by time, you subtract that from the current time, so you know it's been in state two for one second, two seconds, three seconds, right? That's how you're calculating OEE in real time. We have that in Tulip. Awesome, Richard. Yeah, I mean, you guys have obviously built an MES system. <laughs> um, for the timestamps, do you recommend using UTC or local time zone? I use, um, pretty sure it's like, what is it? The uh, epoch time, right? The actual time? Yeah, UTC. Yeah, definitely want to standardize the time so you can do global OE and stuff like that. Um, so let me erase this. So you don't really, you don't really need to collect all the process. You don't really need to have every process parameter. You, you can, you know, you might be able to put some, but really what matters to calculate the availability to calculate, um, you know, you have, you have production counts. So that's, that's going to get, get into quality, which we'll get into in a second, but, um, to calculate availability, you, you do need to do that. All right, so let's go into uh, performance. Uh, performance takes into account slow cycles and small stops. Um, I, I don't know if I really agree with that. This this comes from OE.com. So small stops, I would I would uh, if it's an event and it's a micro stop, I I, I would actually put small stops into uh, availability. Right, I would actually put that into 
and availability loss. Um, maybe what, if they mean small stops by if what the, if what they mean by small stops is like the machine slows down, but it, but the status register always stayed in running, then you could you could consider that as a performance loss. But um, I would typically put small stops because really small stops are your biggest. That's your biggest reason of downtime, right? That's why so many uh, companies that are measuring OE by hand think that their OE their availability is much much higher than it actually is. It's the Microsofts that get you, right? But uh, you know, here that's 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 the third reason why uh, that's the third reason why Walker says that uh, um, OE is like hard, you know there's issues with it is the formulas different formulas. If you can calculate OEE down to the one second, then you could put small stops into this category. So this is one second. And you should be calculating it down to the second. Um, performance score of 100% means the process is running at and is running as, as fast as possible. Um, this is also where some, some potential questions come up. Sometimes, uh, depending on what SKU you're running, depending on what product you're running, it may change what as fast as possible means, right? Uh, for example, the ID4 for uh, Volkswagen takes around 30 hours to make, right? Model 3 from Tesla makes, takes around 10 hours. Um, I don't know the exact number for Model Y, but let's say for sake of argument that the Model Y takes eight hours. So depending on if that line was running a Model 3 or, I don't know if you can, you can't really see that, but you get the picture, right? If it was, if, uh, if you're running a Model 3, then the, 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 as fast as possible would be, you know, an X rate. And then if you're running a Model Y on that line, it might be a faster rate, right? So, um. That's why you need to schedule your rates based on the SKU that you're running. If you just, if you just have, if you just take, hey, this this bottling line is capable of doing a thousand bottles per minute, but um, when we run twenty-four ounce cans versus twelve ounce cans, it takes longer to fill, right? So, and you don't want to just increase the velocity of the filler because then it'll spill the beer or whatever, you know. So, you know, it might literally be um, if you didn't adjust. What the rates were, it might look like, hey, the 24 ounce cans, my my speed is, you know, my speed is low. But if you adjust what as fast as possible means for the SKU, then you know you could have different possible speeds. So you could normalize, uh, you can normalize these. So this is kind of touching on some of the areas of of uh, what people have conflicts with. Um, this is touching on some of the areas where people have conflicts with OE because like, hey, you know, maybe a 12 ounce can costs, you know, uh, is a dollar in profit, but the 24 ounce can is only a dollar and 20, but I can only produce them half as fast. So, you know, in that case, real cost, real profit would be what you'd want to optimize for. But in any sense, you know, if you're running it at 100% speed, you should get 100% performance, right? You shouldn't try to run the 24 ounce can at the 12 ounce speed 
because then your quality will go to shit, <laughs> right? Because then it'll like be spilling the beers or whatever. Um, so let's look at quality last. Quality. So quality takes into account defects, including parts that need rework. Um, a quality score of 100% means there are no defects, only good parts are produced. So one of the things that people said is like quality is not binary. Well, it kind of actually is. At the end of the day, a part's either good enough to ship or it's not good enough to ship. Sure, you can have like the perfect part that, uh, you know, and they, they, they look at quality like this, right? So the quality is um, something like, um, you guys can see this here. Uh, you have like lower control limit, upper control limit. Uh, then you have like actual uh, where, it, where it fails, right, is here. And then essentially you have a distribution that looks something like, like this, you know, you kind of have something like this. So uh, here's your uh, upper control limit, lower control limit, right? This is your actual, uh, you know, your spec, the red line is your spec. So in theory, yeah, you know, if you're producing all parts down here, you've, you've, you've had a drop in quality, but my argument would be if, if this isn't acceptable, if your actual limits aren't acceptable, then change your limits. <laughs> uh, Flames basketball said that picture of Walker is straight on fire. Uh, what is the heat on the feet? Is that a Walker or Jordan guy? Uh, Josh, what's the shoes again? You said it was Puma or something? Uh, CP and CPK, you could continuously monitor those. Exactly, right? You should monitor those. This gets into the straw man argument. You know, they say OE is either a zero, or, you know, it's either a zero, good, or one, good, or zero, bad. But my argument is at the end of the day, right, there's some products that are shipped here that do get shipped, right? So it's, if it's a good part, it's a good part. It doesn't need rework and it gets shipped, right? So uh, if you want to strive to be a, a, a higher quality organization, right, that's one of the, it's funny actually that the Teslas, that's one of their main, main uh, complaints is that the quality is not as high as like, I don't know, like a BMW or something. Well, that's because they're not optimizing for quality. They're optimizing for throughput. They're optimizing for volume. As long as it's good enough to ship, they're going to ship it, right? So it is a good part, right? They may they may rework it later, right? They may you may have to go to the service center and and um, and you know get your trim fixed or something like that, or you know your panel gaps adjusted. But um, you know they're 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 taking that information from the service center and putting that information back into um, their OEE score and saying, Hey, this, this VIN number car that we produced six months ago actually wasn't a good part. It did need a little bit of rework. You, you better believe they're going back and updating that number, right? Rick, um, Bellotta says most manufacturers don't do that. Well, I would agree, but they should be. It doesn't mean that quality, that doesn't mean that quality, right? He says like most people won't know about quality issues till down the road, right? Well, that's not, again, that's not always true, right? They, there are quality issues that they can detect right away, right? I, even some of those machines, like you see um, stuff coming down the line and it uses like a visual camera inspection and then it uses like air to like kick to reject certain parts that are, that are not within spec. 
I mean, they could easily count that as bad, bad part, bad part, bad part. And, and then all the rest of them are good parts, right? Uh, Flame Basketball said disappointed, but still strong. Right. And so at the end of the day, why do we multiply all these together um, to get OEE? Oh. So we multiply all these together. Actually, uh, OEE takes into account all losses. OEE score of 100% means you are manufacturing only good parts as fast as possible with no downtime, with no unplanned downtime. That's what it means. So it actually does mean something. It's not meaningless. It has meaning. Um, you know, and then you can always drill down into each one of these scores individually if your OEE problem, if your OEE has a problem. Um, let's, let's go on to the next slide here. Why are, why are, why is OEE and multi, why is OEE multiplied together? Uh, because math, <laughs> that's why, um, because, um, you know, see, you could see here, this is probably like an, uh, this would be like an OEE score of, you know, this is roughly from here uh, to here, right? Because this is scheduled loss, so this is not red, so this is part of TEEP. So TEEP is another, right? OE is not the only thing. TEEP is, can I get better at scheduling my equipment? Can I reduce my turnover rates? Can I increase, a, can I add a third shift, right? Just by adding a, from two shifts to three shifts, which like, um, SpaceX is doing now. SpaceX is adding a third shift to their manufacturing process of their Starship. They're adding a third shift. So their TEEP is going to go from, you know, at best 66% to at best 100%, right? And you better believe they're fucking monitoring that, right? Um, so, but, but of this 100% time, right, this is our planned production time. Um, we first subtract availability loss because if the machine's not available to run, then you can't be running, right? Um, it's important that when you're calculating this, if you're producing zero parts per minute, that you're not dinging availability and performance, right? This is availability, performance, and then quality. And then this, right, from here to here, you know, that's like a 30% OEE. I don't know if you guys can see that, yeah. So you can real easily see um, that if I had an availability, if I had a runtime, if I had availability of 30%, but then I had 100%, uh, or if I had, yeah, availability of 30%, but then I had a performance of 100% and a quality of 100%, that would equal the same OEE. So it's it just comes down to fully productive time. At the end of the day, you know, it's, you have available time, you have all time, and then you plan your production time, then you have your available runtime, and then you have, you know, what you could have produced in that time versus what you actually produced, because you maybe ran the machine slower or, you know, slowed down a little bit, but it didn't fully stop. Um, and then last but not least, you have your quality loss. Um, measuring binary quality is not useless, right? It literally tells you how many parts you produced that were good, versus how many parts that you produced that were bad. And if you find out after the fact that it was bad, you just go update it, right? Mario, if you're in the chat, um, let me know if you give your operators an ability to within um, to with, within your software 
um, to update quality from history, right? Update the raw events. So then when you calculate OEE again, or um, let's see, um, Rick, Richard Shaw, let me know the same thing. Do you give your operators an ability or your managers an ability to go update quality from previous production runs? Bravo says, I would guess that there are products in the market already available to calculate and present these KPIs, aren't there? Isn't this reinventing the wheel one more time? Uh, uh, no, Ravel, because, well, yeah, I mean, there's lots of products, but you still have to know how this works in order to implement these products because a lot of the times this information is coming from your PLC, right? Well, actually, all of the time it's coming from your PLC. This is how you get the real-time events, right? This is why if you're calculating OEE on a, on a spreadsheet, right, um, Mario said, we, you know, it's going to be inaccurate. Uh, you need to be calculating in real time, and that data comes from the edge. Uh, so a lot of times you might need to make programming changes to get the status register, right, or to know what is, what is downtime, what is, you know, you might have to get the plan time from ERP or from the scheduling, right, but you might want to load that into the PLC, right? You can do that by subscribing to it from the unified namespace. You might want, you might want the PLC to know what product number you're running, Right. These are all things that I had to do. Uh, I did actually the OE system that I built, I built it in WinCCOA, which uh, Walker, you know, I identified WinCCOA as, uh, as an IIoT platform. Right. It, it supports the minimum technical requirements. So that sort of makes it right up there alongside uh, Ignition and frameworks. Uh, the reason why I'm not a super big fan of um, WinCCOA is it has a high learning curve. Right. Um, but it, but it, it, it's fully flexible, right? You can do basically anything in it. So I wrote an OEE engine inside of the um, WinCCOA platform. I did it all using libraries and stored procedures. So the reason why I did that was because we're, we're the manufacturer was giant manufacturing these giant rings, 12 foot in diameter, 10 to 12 feet in diameter. So these, these rings would literally take weeks to make, right? So we had to sort of, we sort of had to break that uh, ring down into its manufacturing steps. Each ring would, you know, it have like, if you look, this is from the top, if you looked at it from the side, it would sort of look like, you know, this and, right, it would have like some sort of contour, uh, you know, and then you had it on that side. But essentially, you know, essentially, I mean, these things were made out of titanium, right? These things were freaking expensive. So, and, and, they, and, and like when it was a week into the job, the supervisors literally had no insight into knowing how far or complete are you on this job, you know? So what we did was we broke the job down into steps, blocks from each operation. So we literally broke it down into every single operation. And um, we got that information from the FANUC CNC. These were like big Morisiki and Honor machines. Um, I mean, these these were like, I won't say the company's name, but think of it like aerospace company making big giant rings for um, Boeing and like for their jet engines, essentially. This was like the cowling for the uh, like GE engines and stuff like that. So so in order to get more granularity into, uh, into their actual planned production time, 
the runtime and et cetera, we broke down this manufacturing operation into its individual components. And then we could tell whether or not um, it, we, we, we actually would, would calculate how long each step was supposed to take. So we knew based on some simulation software, this step was supposed to take you know, 1,000 seconds. This one was only like 50 seconds or whatever, um, or you know, maybe 500 seconds. That's a little quick. But we knew exactly how long each one of those steps would take. And we just counted that against their performance, right? We, calculating availability was pretty easy. We knew if it was running or we knew if it wasn't, right? So we could calculate availability pretty easily. But calculating performance on a part that takes three weeks, it's kind of hard, right? You can't just wait till three weeks and then say, okay, now, now I'm late. <laughs> so we broke it down into individual steps. And you know, this was all written in uh, C uh, within the WinCCOA platform. Um, you know, if I had the IO hub, I'd probably be able to do it within, you know, I'd be able to do some of these calculations in there and submit, sending the raw data to the database, right? Uh, sending the raw data to, um, you know, sending the process data to a Canary historian, right? Um, you know, that was one of the issues was like, we didn't, we didn't have an MTT broker at that time. So, you know, it was all sort of uh, using WinCCOA distributed architecture, which, you know, was kind of, kind of a bitch to set up, you know, if I actually had an MQTT broker publishing, it, publishing and subscribing that information would have been much, much easier, right? Could have centralized it, um, then took those events from the broker and then stored them from the database in the broker rather than having database rights from five different machines out on the plant floor. So, you know, management would have been a lot easier, but essentially, um, and then we could tell, hey, this, this N, N block 101, we had a rework. So if we had a rework it, we would take it out from, you know, we take it out from the quality loss. So, you know, it's not always easy to uh, shove a round peg into a square hole. Sometimes you have to make a square hole for a square peg. And this is a perfect example of the OEE system I built, right? It was called MES Lite. You could look it up. Um, so it's built in WinCCOA. It's still managed by the integrator I used to work with. So um, let's move on. We're gonna go a little bit over here, um, but that's all right, because uh, we're about done here. So three methodologies for improving OE in manufacturing. Uh, the three most popular manufacturing improvement methodologies are lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, and theory of constraints. Uh, this is from OE.com. Um, OE was developed as part of lean manufacturing, specifically as part of a powerful and holistic process uh, proven to uh, improvement process known as TPM or total productive maintenance. All of these methodologies have a great deal to offer for manufacturing improvement. None of these methodologies are easy. As a result, we are often asked, is there a way to get started while we put a comprehensive program in place? The answer is yes. Um, get your unified namespace in place. Get your, get, your, get your infrastructure in place. Like I said, if I had an MQTT broker like HiveMQ, it would have made doing all of those calculations much easier. Uh, and then there's a fourth methodology. Uh, this is actually the first time I've ever heard of it, but I thought it'd be interesting to share, get some of the dialogue and discussion going inside of the Discord. Uh, IDA, uh, this page introduces a simple and universal methodology for driving any improvement activity and shows you how to apply it to OEE. This method is known as the IDA or Information Decision Action. Um, so basically, in, uh, information, identify constraint and capture loss information, 
right? You have to start calculating OE in order for you to do that. Then you take a decision, you pick one of your top losses, one of the, uh, you know, one of the, you know, it's like a Pareto chart. What are the, the biggest areas of losses? Uh, you pick one of those and you decide uh, what to do. Pick a, pick a countermeasure. Hey, maybe we're going to uh, re-engineer this machine or, you know, we're going to, um, you know, change out, you know, we're going to maybe do something a little bit different, like uh, increase, uh, maybe, maybe increase uh, power to a machine or something like that, right? Uh, to, but you basically decide a countermeasure and then you implement the countermeasures and capture what you learn. That gives you a result. So um, it's like a kind of a simple framework. It's I don't know if this is useful or not, but um, let's move on to the last one here. All right, so problems with OVE. And thanks, Rick, for bringing up all these issues. Uh, Rick said in Rick said in the Discord he um, he's taking an extreme approach because he doesn't want OEE to be like the only thing that we focus on. Again, it's not the only thing we focus on. Uh, we're focusing on it right now because that post that Dr. Burns brought up, so uh, we had to address it. But essentially, here's here's a couple uh, here's a couple uh, potential issues with OE, and I'll address each one. So imagine a production. Rick says, imagine a production line. Uh, I gotta take a breath. Imagine a production line where a technician produces strands of some high-tech fiber, like carbon fiber or something. It sounds like maybe something that he's worked on. Shift one runs the uh, shift one runs the machine full out for eight hours and gets a 99% OEE, but then heat buildup causes the nozzles to jam on shift two, leading to a three-day outage and a zero percent OEE. Should we reward shift one for their awesomeness? No, we shouldn't. What we should do is we should look at that and say, hey, the max speed. There's two two solutions here. Max speed, we need to lower it. Or we need to introduce planned downtime. All right, this is what's known as a duty cycle. Uh, there's equipment that's rated for 100% duty cycle. You know what that means? It means good to just run 100% of the time. It doesn't need any stop time. There's other equipment um, that has a duty cycle. Like uh, I think an air compressor isn't meant to just go. Most maybe, and uh, maybe some are, but there are air compressors that maybe only have. Oh, let's see if we can uh, zoom this out a little bit so you guys can see this. There's air, there might be air compressors that you know have a fifty percent duty cycle, so you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't cut out against OE, right? So of course you wouldn't reward them for their awesomeness. You would thank them actually for helping you discover that you know hey this. This machine isn't able to run 100% of the time. It needs a 50% duty cycle, so we need to introduce planned downtime or maybe adjusting the max speed set point would solve that issue. Uh, next one, Rick says, imagine an assembly area where workers are told to strive for 95% First of all, that's ridiculous, but let's just keep going. 95% OE, but because of trying to maintain that frantic pace for hours, they end up with injuries that keep them out of work for six months. Is that a good way to manage operations? No. Uh, the good way to manage operations is to design a manufacturing workflow that you know doesn't introduce these type of strains to your uh, operators, right? 100% uh, availability should be shouldn't be like you're running, you know, 100 or 100% speed shouldn't be like, oh, you know, I gotta like 
you know, do all these things and it's just impossible, right? Then that's not hundred percent speed. That's, that's your speed is incorrect or you need more operators, right? Uh, this, so in this case, you might need more operators or you might, um, again, this is a sort of, sort of like a straw man, you know, like don't take OE out of context. Um, that's weird. All right. Um, imagine a heat. All right. So yeah, that's, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> imagine, heat, imagine a heat surface treatment process that can crank out twice as much product at full speed, but consumes four times the amount of energy and generates significantly more CO2 while consuming eight times more cooling water. Is that better or worse? Um, in order to answer that question, uh, in order to answer that question, I would need to know exactly how much the water costs. I would need to know, uh, are there any carbon costs? Are, are we paying a carbon tax for the carbon we're putting in? And then I would need to know what's the profitability on uh, the product. And then it's a simple equation, right? You can do that by calculating that in real time. So, I mean, it's a good question, right? But it's, the answer is really easy. What is, what is, what is the CO2 carbon cost? What is the water cost? Like if water is super cheap, then I don't really care if we're using eight times more cooling water, right? If we have unlimited supply, um, if we're getting it like from an ocean or something like that, um, or from a river or whatever, right? You can put numbers to these things. So just put numbers to them and calculate it. Um, you know, he's, he's probably trying to make the illustration that it's worse. So in that case, yeah, then, then, then what you would do is you would say um, at full speed, what you would do is you would say full speed, you'd have to lower it. So, you know, if it was running at 100%, if 100% speed was like 100% or whatever, you would take 80, you know, oh, we need to run it at 80%. So 80% speed is now the new 100%, okay? Um, next one, imagine a packaging line that ran at 96% OE, but a week later it was realized that the wrong labels we're from the bottles. Do you think OE numbers gets corrected? Um, it doesn't matter that most manufacturers don't do it. What matters is that you should do it and that Tesla does it. And um, Pack IoT allows you to do that, right? Um, Tulip allows you to do that. MES 4.0 allows you to do that, right? Uh, the MES system that I built, I allowed the operator to do that. Um, Re Rework was a big example. Like they had to say, hey, I'm reworking this block, right? Um, because you know, Rick's right. Oftentimes there isn't an automated detection. So the operator has to let them know and they're going to want to let them know because otherwise if they didn't let me know that, Hey, end block 101 was being reworked, then it would just, then it would actually just, it wouldn't take it out of the quality score. It would take it out of performance because it would look like it took twice as long to finish that block. But in reality, they were just reworking it. So, you know, it's a good point, but I don't really, you know, again, I don't think it really makes a difference with OE. Um, imagine, so here's the last one. Imagine a spe specialty. These are really good examples, Rick. Thanks for all the en en uh, engagement in the Discord. But imagine a specialty chemical facility where different products are manufactured due to a variety of different reasons. OEE varies by product uh, because of stochastic sto aspects of downtime and quality. Again, this is part of the reason why you want to schedule your rates, okay? But since operators and supervisors are given a bonus for OE, don't do that. That's a bad idea. 
um, they choose to run the orders for product A and B on their shifts, deferring orders for product C and D, which end up shipping late and costing customer goodwill. No, it wasn't a win. All right. Um, what you do in this scenario is you, you adjust your rates for products A. You, you don't bonus off of uh, OBE. Really, what if you're going to do a bonus, it should be tied to profitability. And you uh, I said this in the Discord, machine learning and AI needs OEE in order to decide what product to run on what line and when. You might have a product uh, order that you've had for a while, but a new one just came in and it's more profitable to run, even though it has a lower OEE score running that one um, because it's more difficult or whatever. It, that's why you want to optimize for profit, not necessarily OE, but you still need OEE to calculate your capacity and to calculate how long it's going to take you to actually produce that production run, which ultimately calculates your profitability. Um, no, it wasn't a win. <laughs> and, and I know Rick's, I know Rick's being contrarian here just to make a point, but I mean, these were very easily solvable uh, issues, right? They just need to be talked about. Um, let's see. And I'm sure you guys can come up with more examples and more use cases and more solutions. Um, all right, so we got the last slide here. Yeah, these were all my answers. Um, yeah, this is Rick's, this was Rick's most, in, uh, this is probably the smartest thing that Rick said. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, Rick said a lot of smart things, but this is one of my favorite things that he said is, you know, Credit words do Walker's UNS concepts lay a great foundation for a new approach to KPIs, far more comprehensive, contextual, and actionable. Let's think about how to leverage UNS to do this better. Let's do that. Way to go, Rick. Mario said, it's usually the plant manager would have to argue with the CFO and sales to solve this case. It is not a plant manager's decision to lower OE to favor different products. It is a decision, it is a company decision. All right. Um, questions. <laughs> if you guys have any questions, uh, let me know in the chat. Otherwise, uh, we'll wrap this up here in a couple of minutes. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, thank you again, HiveMQ, for sponsoring uh, the month of November. We got a lot of good content coming for you guys. So. Uh, we have HiveMQ to thank for making that possible. Um, agreed. OEE is not a good metric to qualify an enterprise's economic engine. Economic engine should be in terms of profit per X. X depends on your operation, and OEE is part of that calculation, um, or you know the raw events that go into OEE. Um, if you guys had a, if you guys enjoyed this stream, make sure to hit the like button. Uh, join the community Discord server if you're not already. Um, let me put the link on the screen now, iot.university slash discord. Uh, in the discord, there's actually a, a new channel for HiveMQ. So if you have any specific questions about HiveMQ, um, you want to take advantage of their free broker, you can do a free HiveMQ broker for like up to 100 devices. I know a lot of the people in our community are taking advantage of that. Um, so definitely go ahead and join there. Um, special, a special shout out, thank you to Ian um, Skerritt 
for helping, you know, helping put the sponsorship together and making it happen on short notice. We really appreciate that. Uh, a couple things to note, something to look forward to in, in, in December is uh, Walker Reynolds interviewing Sandy Monroe on our channel, talking about, um, you know, Sandy's prolific in the manufacturing industry, especially in the automotive. And, it, you know, it sort of plays into what we're talking about this month. So uh, do, you do you add the OE for each cell in the line to take an average or something else? Yeah, so you, you, you can calculate OE by cell. But then what you do is you recalculate it for the whole line, right? You, you always want to use the raw data and not take an average, if that answers your question. So if I wanted to calculate OE of my whole entire plant, I wouldn't just average the OEs of line one, line two, line three. I would, I would take the sum of their components and then recalculate it. So that way it's weighted. There is, there is a slight issue with that in the sense that, um, you know, one machine might be producing a thousand parts per minute, but another machine might only be producing one part per minute. So this machine over here might have a quality or, uh, you know, good parts of, you know, 10 in a day, whereas this machine over here has a good parts of a thousand. So if you, you know, the quality loss on this machine that produces less parts won't impact the overall. So there, 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 there are issues with it, but overall, if you just take it by the unit basis, then calculating it based on the raw data and re recalculating it when you do aggregations is the way to do it. I actually did a video. I'll link it there. How to how to how to aggregate OEE by line, you know, by cell, by line, by area, by plant, and um, you know that was one of the comments that came up was, you know, if there's a vast difference in like the number of parts that one machine produces versus another, then those will be weighted differently. So, you know, again, it's not perfect, but it, it's the way you should do it. It's better than averaging it. Or, you know, maybe in that scenario, you'd, it, it might make more sense to just average the two. But in general, use the raw counts because availability is, is that makes sense, right? You have available seconds to run and then you have your actual seconds that you ran. So seconds is seconds is seconds, right? So, you know, for availability, take the raw data, number of seconds you plan to run versus number of seconds you actually ran. And then you aggregate that in one big pool. Um, you know, you have issues with quality. You could get into sort of a Simpsons paradox issue there. Um, so again, it's not perfect, but it, you know, it's a tool in our tool belt and to say it's to say it's shit or to say burn it is just leading manufacturers in the wrong direction and causing them to get analysis paralysis. Let's, let's get the right architecture in place. Let's start calculating this in real time. Let's get the benefit of displaying that to the operator in real time. There's going to be improvements in OEE just by virtue of tracking it and displaying it in real time, right? They're going to improve um, if they know that this is something that it matters, right? Having the company stay profitable matters if they want to, if people want a job, right? We want Americans to be employed, right? There's a lot of, uh, this is a philosophical component, but uh, you know, I'll share Walker's message here in a second that he has for you guys. But our mission is to say create middle class jobs for man by helping manufacturers do more with less. A lot of the social and issues that we're facing in our in our uh, environment right now is because of uh, a lack of the middle class. And there, in order for there to be a middle class, there has to be manufacturing jobs, right? That's if there's no one to make stuff, then then stuff doesn't get made, and then we have supply chain shortages, right? We need a strong manufacturing in the United States in order for there to be a strong middle class. 
in order for a lot of these social unrest issues to be solved, right? So that's what we're doing. Thank you guys for tuning in. Walker said uh, he's dealing with some personal issues right now um, that he has a responsibility to address. Um, and he's also working on rewrites for the book that comes out later this year uh, in December. So adversity and success uh, is what the title of the book's going to be. And um, it's definitely going to be uh, something you want to pick up when it comes out. So thanks again, everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, we'll see you guys in the Discord and uh, see you guys next week. Peace.